0: All right, everybody, we are back with our second interview for Let's Dig Into It. We're here with my friend, Rosie Sanchez. Um, I met Rosie, well, like two or three years ago now, working for, was it two? Has it been that long? I feel like it's been longer. I don't
1: know. Yeah.
0: What is time? What is time? What
1: is time? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, anyway, she was my boss at um, an organization that we worked together in wildlife rehab. And she is now working in Colorado at Defenders of Wildlife, which is a great organization. Um, and she is a conservation coordinator of the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains and is doing some badass work in conservation out there. So, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Rosie, and welcome and thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, you're, I'm so proud of you. This is yeah. such an awesome i mean this is just such an awesome podcast and just listening to the past episodes you're a phenomenal host i'm just super stoked to be here you know my name is rosie sanchez i am a a mexicana guatemalteca american um, Mm -hmm. first generation um, that is in a conservation field i live in colorado but my work spans from montana wyoming North and South Dakota, Kansas, and Nebraska. I am originally from Oregon, where I met Sam, and that's where my heart is. Um, I miss the ocean, but the mountains are still absolutely amazing out here, and a whole, a whole. List of species out here that I didn't know, you know, you're, you're not exposed
0: to. Exactly. You don't when even I
1: saw, know exist. <laughs> when I saw blue jay for the first
0: time in Colorado, I freaked out and people around yeah. me were like, that's just a blue jay. It's like, that's yes. not just a blue jay. They're beautiful. <laughs> They're beautiful. And like, <laughs> I like, I always think about this this time of year because like in Ohio where I'm from, the Cardinals, everyone's posting pictures of like the red male Cardinals against the white snow. And I'm like, I've never seen a Cardinal in like the seven years that I've been out here. And I never will again, like maybe once in that rare opportunity. But anyway, I would love for you to, to talk about what Defenders of Wildlife is and what they do.
1: Yeah, so Defenders of Wildlife is a, um, a conservation organization focused on wildlife, the preservation and conservation of wildlife and wild places. So Defenders is a national organization. So we're headquartered in DC. We have field offices in the Northwest, uh, the Rocky Mountains and Great Plains, California, the Southwest and the Southeast, with staff you know scattered across all of the country with different focuses. So me living in Denver, once again, my my range is from those different those different states, but work with different colleagues in all the other states for like joint projects, like in the uh, North Cascades grizzly bear recovery. Same in Montana, you know. There's different there's different projects that overlap. Um, same with wolves. So we don't only just do wildlife policy, but the places they inhabit as well. So the Arctic National Refuge, we were we were doing that success there thank goodness but kind of over you know overshadowed by the recent events of what happened a couple on wednesday
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah
1: yeah we Mm. uh (laughs) the border wall we do um because of wildlife crossing um we were we're a part of that um florida panther recovery etc so (laughs) it's just a lot of conservation and preservation of wild things and wild places
0: Amazing, really, you're like the like most boss, boss person I've ever met, <laughs> like I love you and I love that you work for this organization and you're doing some like really, really amazing things in so many different ways as well, and so I hope that uh, other people who listen to this are like you're a boss person because you are, so yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And okay, so then I would love to uh, get, have you get down into what your favorite bird is.
1: Oh God, why would you? You know, such a hard me question. This? <laughs> this, and I'm surrounded by like pictures of a cliff, a cliff swallow, and Anna's hummingbird. <laughs> 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 um, a belted kingfisher, double crested cormorant, cedar waxwing, great blue heron. I'm in a vermilion flycatcher. I'm surrounded by all of these things because once people know you're a bird person, they know they to get you bird stuff. Yeah, yeah they do. Really <laughs> all of all stuff. of the things. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I don't know. I I always tell people it's a roseate spoonbill just because I'm fascinated by their anatomical structure, and I've never seen one, and that would be the only reason why I go to you know go to Florida. I just the humidity is just too much for me. The hair. You know what? Been-
0: I feel I was gonna ask you if you had ever seen one. So like me being like a new birder and dabbling in the, all of this stuff right now, like I'm I'm finding that like the roseate spoonbill is such a like hot commodity and like such a like. Yeah, life bird that everybody wants to see, and I'm like, oh, I've seen one. Like, uh, when I went <laughs> to the like IAATE conference for like oh, yes. uh, for avian training, um, like how like two years ago, I went down and like stayed maybe a week or something. After my mom came and visited, and we went on a airboat r- ride. Oh. And we just, and then he was like, "Oh yeah, there's a roseate spoonbill," and I was like, "Oh cool, well, I, I don't know, you know." <laughs> <So it's on laughs> my so- list. I have seen it, you know, yeah. but so- apparently wow. it's a big deal. <laughs> but they're just so
1: cool, and like the yeah. Scarlet Ibis, I'm just so fascinated yeah. by birds who, like, defy the odds with their coloring, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that's what why the belted kingfish are so special to me too, because. I mean, the female is the sexually dimorphic one in right. that equation. So I feel like she she's like the, the ultimate
0: feminist, you know, bird out there. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love her. Yeah, um, she's really going against all of the, the, the biological norms, the- yeah.
1: But I mean the cedar waxwing, I mean you remember what it was like feeding like the baby cedar wax wings. So cute. But they're so I they're just so, can't so I can't cute. with them. This they're
0: this so huge, cute. Like magenta mouths and like they're oh, really freaking cute. They're and they're so tiny cute. little like yellow tip tail. Oh, they're so cute. Did we land on your favorite bird? Was it the rose yet
1: Oh Sam, I don't know.
0: You have know.
1: to pick one. You have I to, have to pick one. Yeah.
0: <sighs> Even if it's just like for this moment, it doesn't have okay. to be forever.
1: I guess my I guess my go to would be the Quetzal, the resplendent Quetzal. You know, um, just because it means so much to me um, mm. and my heritage. You know, my mom's Guatemalteca. Mm. She came here when she was fourteen years old, and she doesn't she didn't know much about her country. And the way that I learned more about her our you know our heritage was through birds and through wildlife. And my mom's my mom's father is of Mayan descent, and come to find out the quetzal is everywhere in Guatemala, right it's on the flag it's their currency and it's this beautiful beautiful like green iridescent bird with a red patch on its chest are you looking it up right now
0: i'm looking it up don't call me out i'm like what is that i think i know don't tell me though i think i know exactly what you're talking about
1: it has a tiny oh little yeah kind of
0: okay yeah 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 i did not spell that right it's like this long tail. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. It's beautiful, and it lives in the cloud oh forest in Guatemala. And it's it's said that the um you know Tecunuman, the last chief of the Mayan of the Mayan people, when he when he uh, was struck and died, uh, the quetzal was flying above as kind of like the spear guide of the people. Um, and he was all green, you know, at that time. And when Tikunoman died, the Quetzal fell out of the sky and onto his chest. And when the when the fight was done, the Quetzal rose and that's when the red chest, um, that's when he came up with the red chest. So it said that the, the redness on his chest represents the Mayan blood.
0: Wow. I think like one of the things that I don't, Think that people, well, white people talk about enough in birding or birds or in anything animal related, is like the meaning behind a lot of a lot of animals in different cultures. And like that story that you just told, I didn't know, you know. Well, yeah. and I didn't even know what the dang bird was. So you know, <laughs> let me give myself a break there. <laughs> but but like but like for real, I know like a lot of people post about that bird like there's pictures out there I've seen you know people go that you know to on birding tours to see this bird but then when they post these pictures they don't say anything about the cultural relevance of it to the place that they went to see this bird you know it's like the yeah. same thing too about um I just spent some time learning about the Euro people in California who are doing all this work for the California condor really like releasing it back in California to, I found an article by an indigenous online newspaper and they just talked so much about the cultural meaning and rele- like, uh, relevance to this bird um, historically for the Yurok people um, and like, that, that's such a huge reason as to why they are even pushing so hard to get this bird back into yeah. the, the, the old sacred lands and like you know National Audubon Society posted an article about it and they didn't say anything about that it was all scientific based, right? And I was just like, that's cool and everything. It's important information. But like, if you're gonna talk about the yoruba people, like talk about why they're doing it, you know? Yeah. It's so annoying, it's just, I don't know, I I don't know. It bothers no,
1: me. No, that, I think that you're right. I think especially in the conservation field, the separation from soul and mm-hmm. science is very apparent mm-hmm. um, because there can be no you know, variable when it comes to their findings. And I I understand that, you know, being a scientist and all, but it just, uh, at what point do we actually look back and say, hey, the reason reason why I'm doing this is because my soul calls to it, right? The reason why you and I both love birds is because our soul calls to it. Yeah, there's a lot of amazing and fascinating scientific things like about the, you know, the belted kingfisher. Why (laughs) is it like that, you know, um, but ultimately it can all translate into why our soul craves to be around them right Um,
0: that's why people get into these fields in the first place right you know it's not it's it's not architecture you're not like having that brain you know what I mean you're not like I'm gonna build this thing that needs to be 90 degrees and do that you know what I mean you're getting to animal fields because you're like oh my god I love animals you know I want to protect them and then at what point do you lose that and yeah. look and like only use one side of your brain again to to like view the world in which you're doing your work. Anyway, that's a whole nother episode, I feel like, but like i I really want to dig into that like hardcore <laughs> about like why why we're not anyway, but um, okay, so my next couple questions are how did you discover the world of birds and birding? Okay,
1: so when I was 16 years old, I'm currently 29, I um, had to pick a project for my senior project, right? And since I was 11, I knew that I wanted to be a zoologist. But I grew up in, you know, central eastern Oregon, where the population was 9,000 people. Um, There were no zoologists out there, right? We didn't have... A zoo, the closest zoo was the Portland Zoo, which was three and a half hours away. It had only been twice in my life. Once I got pooped on by a bird. Was that a lucky sign? Probably. When I was 16, I had to pick a senior project. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? And my advanced biology uh, teacher, um, Chuck Gates, shout out to Chuck Gates. Uh, he He's just like, well, you could monitor the sewer ponds for populations of birds. I'm like, that doesn't sound cool. But <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> That doesn't sound great. Um, And then (laughs) he took me and my homegirl, Tina Zoo, out for like our first bird watching trip. Because he's like, okay, this is what it's going to be like as my mentees. So we we went down, we went, God, I'm blanking on the name, but I can picture it clearly. But we, it was along the side of a riverbank and we're on the other side of the riverbank. And we spent two and a half hours calling in a pig meow, a Northern pig meow. Mm -hmm. And every time, like I was just, fascinated and I was there the entire time every minute it didn't uh-huh. feel like two and a half hours right it uh-huh. felt like it was like that and then uh-huh. we it didn't uh-huh. even come to us right it just it was across the bank and we had to look at it with the scope because uh-huh. this motherfucker's tiny tiny right? yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> like
1: <laughs> slip through, through the bars at the care center tiny right uh-huh. tiny. so but that's that's when it was and it just since then, I was like, this is the coolest project that I could ever think about. And then from there on, I would go out three, two, three times a week for two to three hours a day, just looking at um, the sewer ponds and looking to see, like collecting my data, but also like finding a pintail for the first time, seeing a great blue heron rookery, you know, being able to identify birds by sound. Um, That's what hooked me. And calling it a Virginia rail because somebody thought they saw a weird bird in a marsh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: just wild shit like that. I also have like a weird similar story—not a weird similar story, but like a um, a story about my first time being like doing field work. I like look. I don't. I hated it so much. I hated it. I was doing bluebird like box, like nest box counting, yeah. In Ohio so it's like 90 degrees and it was hot and all of the the boxes were like buried out in these fields that were like had poison ivy up to my knees that I had to go through like once, it was just once a week, you know, and then like, I just didn't know what I was getting myself into because I was still young and I did not understand what field work was at all. And they're just like, yeah, go we'll count the bluebird, you know, eggs and nests and like watch the babies grow and write down your numbers and all that. And I was like, cool, dude. Oh, I did not funny. know that that meant poison ivy, that that meant freaking scraping be beeh- like a wasp nest out of boxes. Yeah mice that were jumping at my face because they were terrified when I opened the box, swallows, I don't know what kind, attacking me because their nests were in the bluebird boxes and and also like, like killing starling babies. I didn't know that, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I didn't know I had to do all that shit. And also there was like this one time where I was walking, again, I was not a birder at this point. I didn't know that turkeys operated this way. So like- First of all, what wild turkeys are wild. Like, I, I don't like them. I mean, I love them. I love everybody. But like, mm. I didn't know that they would like just hide in the tall grasses and then scare the shit out of themselves and me and just like jump in the air Water. and then fly yeah, into a, a branch. And I was just like, <laughs> I almost shit myself that day. Like, I didn't know. this. This was much more than I signed up for. <laughs> but I had a blast doing it and I would do it again and I also discovered it's 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 fun I just like it was just an adventure every single time and I was just like what am I going to get myself into this like this time and I discovered hummingbird moths at that field work job I did not know I didn't I didn't know they are cool I've never seen anything like that and, and and have never seen something like that since you know
1: that's amazing. I feel like um, field work is, I mean, that's where the love grows, right? You, it either makes you or breaks you like, no, this is not for me. This is yeah. not. For me. <laughs> or it's like, I love this. This is a new adventure. This is what I want to pursue for the rest of my life. I, you know, I graduated from Oregon state with my fisheries and wildlife degree mm-hmm. in conservation biology. And, you know, the other part of wildlife is fisheries mm-hmm. and girl, I did not, I do not, I'm not down with the fish. I mean, I get it. They're, they're great for the ecosystem. I love salmon because mm-hmm. of the of significance in the mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest, right? Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. I just like being wet all the time. I like fell. The waders were too big for me. Like turning, like sedating and microchipping little tiny fish. I just like, I, it was just all too much for me. Yeah. And that was when I was like, I, I'm going to pursue birds and mammals. Yes. I think I'm going to leave the fish to other people.
0: Uh-huh. That I... I, <laughs> this is so fun, like, in college, I had a, like, a field, a field bio class, and so we went out and did a bunch of different crap, and then we did the, the fish one, where we had to put the waders on, I actually had a blast doing that, and, like, catching little, like, sucker fish, I don't know what, I don't know what the, know what the fuck fish they were, this was Ohio, I don't know, um, but anyway, they, then they took us into the field to do, oh my god, spider work, oh, no, 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 this is a break it moment for me. I could not deal with it because they had us walking through these tall reeds looking for some sort of orb spider that like builds their web between like reeds at your face level, but you don't see that shit until you're up on it. I was having a heart attack the whole time, the whole entire time. I don't want to do that. No. Mm -mm. So yes, birds and mammals for me and fishes. I just, you know cool you know which <laughs> is an insects yeah nah, i'm not about it no thank you <laughs> all right rosie when i we've, have we have been birding together we've gone birding together right i, feel like I don't we. think just me and you have gone but in a group maybe we haven't ever gone birding together officially I wrong, think that
1: we, I we went on an eagle rescue together we've been on yeah
0: oh buddy that's fun love <laughs> <laughs> well, i miss that I think yeah. I mentioned it almost in every single podcast episode I put out how much I love rescuing eagles. That shit is like, whew, talk about a rush. Um, I was asking if we had ever been birding together because I want to know, especially now that you're in Colorado, when I come out to visit you when COVID is not a thing no more, whenever that is, where are we going birding in Colorado? I would love, love to do that. I don't know, is, it, is, there, is there good birding in Colorado?
1: I mean, we'll have to go to the Rocky Mountain Arsenal because there's burrowing owls here, mm-hmm. and potentially black-footed ferrets, but they're nocturnal, right? We mm-hmm. have a lot of wonderful, like we have bison out here, and yes. soon to be wolves. That's a that's a fun one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, birding. I I don't know. I haven't been birding a lot out here. Mm-hmm. I'm still on you know eBird and checking to see if there's any like amazing like snowy owls in the area. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the grassland birds, because it's the Great Plains, right? Mm-hmm. We'll have to, I'll have to take you out to like the Southern Plains Land Trust
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: to go see, but those are just like sparrows and larks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll both brush up on our grassland. Birds. Good, because
0: don't know them, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Back home in Oregon, you, I mean, you go to where my, my spot is, you know, Savvy's, that's,
0: that's I love like, it. That's the oh, place. I love it. Well, next time you're back out here, we'll we should do that. Yeah, and I did. That would be that would be amazing. Anyway, um, okay. So, what is your best birding story? It doesn't even have to be like um a cool bird that you saw birding, but like even a rehab story. I consider that birding, whatever
1: yeah oh okay I mean one of the most amazing experiences that i had had was when a Pifa came in a peregrine falcon Uh came in um and it's a big deal around those motherfuckers Uh I'd never seen a morph like this before it was orange it was an orange morph and I was like this isn't a Pifa like what is what the hell is this so it kind of got it's it's two stories but when I came in that day and everyone's like there's a peregrine falcon here there's a peregrine falcon here the lights were down in the main room you know no one was allowed in there until you know who showed up
0: um
1: mm -hmm. and when, when we got the opportunity to go in there, it was so wild to see the reaction of the Peregrine Falcon. Just so, it was like holding itself in the noblest of ways, in the most noble ways. And when the door opened, it was just calm. And it was so weird because Lacey was just like, you bowed to them, right? I forgot who told me to bow to them. Um, but this Peregrine Falcon like bowed kind of, put its head down like bowed back mm-hmm. and then was easily handled from then it's yes. just if like, you, you respect I show you respect and it's just it's just wild to see and then the first time I saw a peregrine falcon was coming from the northeast side to no the north the north side of Portland to the northeast side on the Fremont bridge mm-hmm. and I saw because there's nesting peregrines underneath that bridge mm-hmm. and so I saw a peregrine falcon like as I'm coming into northeast, northeast, and it was just wild to see. It's like she's just hanging out
0: there, like it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. Yeah, but it is a big deal. <laughs> but it is a big fucking
1: deal. like they
0: don't know that it's a big deal, but we know that it's a big fucking deal it's to see peregrine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, peregrine so, are, are cool. I didn't know an orange phase or morph. Was, not yeah, phase, but it's, it's like a weird, like beautiful, burnt
1: orange morph, like um, a Cooper's
0: hawk a, orange kind of check, yeah. like that.
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. It was huh. it was wild, but it was so beautiful. I never and I was just like, this isn't this isn't a peregrine falcon. This can't be a peregrine falcon. Look at that morph. And did it get released? Do You remember? I believe so. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure though of that one because it's like high profile, and so us plebs weren't allowed to know much about it.
0: Sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, what do you not like about birding? Um, how exclusive it is. it is. So <laughs> exclusive it is I'm, like. It's become some weird, like, like freaking club. I don't know. It's weird. I don't like it.
1: I mean, it, to see another person of color out birding when I'm birding is like finding gold. It's know? an anomaly.
0: I know. I've never, I've never randomly had that happen.
1: Yeah, I when I used to do Christmas bird counts back in my, you know back in prineville where i grew up i was taught by the best you know i was i was taught by the best Mm -hmm. Um, and people would question my intelligence all the time and now i don't know and obviously i'm birding with like older white birders right and so i don't know if if that that lack of faith came from my age Mm -hmm. or from who i am how Mm -hmm. am i me being a latina so I, i don't know um and also I hate it when people are when you know it's it's easy to be a hiker I'm, I'm not going to say that because hiking is hard but yeah. it's easy activity like I'm a hiker or I'm a climber mm. but when you say like I'm a birder it just like doesn't make sense like there's still shock on people's faces when you're like I occupy that space in the outdoors yeah you know it's yeah. just still, still not and it's not accessible like you still have to have binoculars you have to know where you have to navigate all of these different applications like what about accessibility you know yeah. there's not there's not a lot of that intertwined into birding
0: there's also like this this level of romanticism around uh, traveling for birding as well yeah. that really downplays the types of birds that you can see just around where you live, even if you are in a high-rise apartment downtown or something like that, you know, or in like a really, really urbanized area where there's maybe not a lot of greenery, you can still see some really cool birds and, and this romanticizing of like even traveling like, like I do that I'm grateful to be able to do to Sawbys or to Richfield or to the coast. There's a lot of, like, uh, that's the level of birding that you need to do to be knowledgeable or to be a good, what quote, unquote, good birder or to see, quote, unquote, good birds, you know, as if, like, the crow family in your neighborhood isn't super awesome and funny and like give you entertainment every day all day you know like like i don't get it um
1: leave it on corvids
0: like leave them alone they're just mad because they're smart as shit and they're probably smarter than them (laughs) you know like but yeah i i agree it's it's very elitist um it's very uh as i've said multiple times it's this idea of like you got to catch them all like Pokemon like and that's where I think this level of yeah. traveling for birding comes like comes from of like needing to have this like super complete life list and like if you don't have that then you're not like the very best birder and it's yeah. just like how how odd of a mentality and absurd of a mentality and then also that what does that do for like these, these young kids of really any color, but specifically brown, black and brown kids who do not relate to that and cannot relate to that sometimes, you know? But they yeah. want to learn more, I don't know. It's just so, I agree with you.
1: No, you're right. And, you know, when you see uh, different organizations that are surrounded in, you know, the conservation specifically for birds, uh, you get the adult um, education programs that cost and these trips that are offered right at like discounted rates, if you're a member, but they're still like four grand, five Mm -hmm. grand require you to have a passport. It's just Without without knowing, um, subconsciously limiting the accessibility to different people and especially to people of color. But that's just that's just what it is, you know. I guess.
0: But here we are, people like. <laughs> that. Here we are. Here we are, and like I think too, like the thing about. Something that I learned when we were working at the place that we work together, too, is like that there's this mentality that like people of color can't afford things like that or can't afford to be big donors, you know? And I'm just like, what? What? No, that's not even true. There are plenty of people of color out there who are wealthy and want to give and have money to give or have money to travel like that. You, as as an organization, are operating in whiteness and racism because you are not looking for those people because you're assuming that they can't and that like was like a a, because we're always learning our you know as people of color we're always on our journey of of undoing whiteness in ourselves right and so when I like heard that facility that organization talking about like the ideas of reaching out to people of color for donating but it was in this way of like they're not going to be big donors I was like, wait a minute. I I know some wealthy black people out there. Like, you know what I mean? There's some rich ass motherfuckers out out here that like have money to blow. And you just don't... Anyway, it was just like such a... It it was like another... I always say like in my journey of learning... Um, and unlearning that I'm taking like these rose tinted glasses off, like these different shades, you know? Um, It was just one of those times where I took one of those layers off and I was like, wait a fucking minute. And then you see much more, you see more and more and more about how shit operates, right? Oh yeah. Anyway.
1: That's really interesting. And I I don't think that it was limited to that one organization. Uh, I think that in this big green movement uh, there, you know, hidden behind a liberal progressive agenda um, is, is still the structures of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, where is, where does DIJ intersect in the conservation movement um, when human when, I mean, you see the forefathers, and I put this in quote, of conservation, like Aldo Leopold and um, Audubon. And they're, you know, they're ignorant and racist mm-hmm. um, and thinking that the outdoors is specifically for a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to undo and unlearn all of that. So it's it's very interesting to see <laughs> to see it very open now, like that article in Politico about Audubon that like you, you were talking about and rightfully angry about mm-hmm. um, in episode seven, or was it six? I think it was seven. It, it, it's all falling down, right? Mm-hmm. This, every, there, these rose-tinted glasses are coming off. It's, um, it's exposing whiteness and the conservation movement for what it is, um, just a direct mirroring of what we have in society today.
0: Mm-hmm. and so it's like you can't you can't it's like this weird thing that like if you have empathy for animals and your in and the environment that they're in that that you then have empathy for people and I'm like that's, that's nice. not those don't go together at all and it's extremely clear um when you especially when I think when you work in a organization that is dedicated to conservation it's just like the way that for example I'll give this example (laughs) when I was training the ed birds at that place I felt that people had so much more empathy and understanding for the ways in which these birds may have been suffering than the way that they were treating me every day yeah and I was just like are you Oh, what the hell is the difference? You know, like, really, what's the difference here? I mean, everybody deserves empathy and the same level of trying to put yourself in their shoes to understand what they could possibly be going through. So how is it easier for you to do that with a dog or a cat or a, a bird than it is to, for you to do that with a Black person, a brown person, a queer person, a trans person? You know, I don't yeah. get that. And so it's just... it's it, I don't. I feel like that's what happens when people get into this, like a, a conservation movement or conversations around animals and stuff like that. Is that that because people have empathy for that, they naturally will have empathy for the plight or struggle for people. And it's just not true. You make a really amazing point, Sam,
1: and I. <laughs> it's something that we live live through every day, right? In um, you as a black woman, me as a Latina woman. Brown presenting it's very uh it's very interesting to see people who have love for the environment or love for animals completely disregard um the love for different people who do not look like them and Mm -hmm. sit in in that space of difference it's Mm -hmm. I don't know what to call that but literally I can tell you that a lot of my time is spent trying to navigate that Mm -hmm. navigate how, how where where the missing link is, because I don't understand how you can care so much about this, but not about other people. Like, listen, people suck. Like, people fuck and suck, right? But at yeah. the same time, like, it's the people are beautiful. Um, and that's how you build community. Um, so I just, when, if you figured out, you let me know how, how that can translate and
0: how how that I don't know and then I really feel like I really I want to talk soon about and this is me digressing away from all these questions I have for you but (laughs) we're just chatting um I really want to get into soon um I'm gonna put out an episode around how this idea how the historical uh racism with you know Audubon and then birding coming from there and the act of birding and conservation really um, has affected the way that specifically, I think white elitist birders look at birds species and how their racist views translate onto how they see birds. For example, how we look at and and talk about the idea of invasive species. And then what <laughs> then comes from that is this idea that there's so much hate for you know a European starling, but like to the point where people are illegally killing them, like so much hate for one bird because somebody said it was non-native invasive, just labeled it that way. But yeah. you love birds. But you don't have any any empathy, any understanding, or any like uh, uh, l- like love for how beautiful starlings are. And then, do you understand that white people brought them them over here in the first place, and now they're a problem? You brought them over here, but now they're a problem. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a, I can't wait to dig into that, like because <laughs> I really feel like that that lens, that way that people you know, want to protect one species over another, kill one species over another, is such a, um, to me, a direct relation to racism and slavery and, and killing people of color. Um, it's, a di- it's, it's a direct relationship to uh, colonizing indigenous communities coming over here. You know what I mean? Like that's that way, that way that people look at that is the same way that people look at birding. It's, it's funny that you say that because I, I was thinking about
1: this the other day and um, about starlings specifically. I was like, God, starlings are the rats of the sky. They're coming, <laughs> they're pushing out all of these native species and they're, you know, making that native species don't have homes to be in and their habitat is degrading. I was like, what, who the fuck does that sound like? And I'm like, I mm-hmm. sound like fucking Donald Trump when mm-hmm. it comes to and I was like, "Who the fuck am I?" You know that it's, and it was puzzling to think of it like that because, once again, um, like rooted in science um, and grew grew up birding, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: damn, that had that made me stop and think, like, "Wow,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that, this is a direct mirroring of what we're ex- like seeing in society?"
0: Mm-hmm. And there's just like, I mean, and I again, I totally understand. The the science behind why starlings are considered invasive species because they do yeah. they do do damage. Like I get that. Not not gonna. I'm not saying that that's not important. But what if we actually took what we let's bring it back to what we were talking about earlier? What if we actually took our soul back into science and the way that we look at nature? and just look at it a little bit differently because nobody is making us continue to view shit in one way. Nobody is forcing us to do that. Nobody is forcing us to continue to hate and kill starlings because they have succeeded in wonderful adaptation skills. You know, like nobody's forcing us to do that. And so what a wonderful world it could be if we understood why they are problematic and worked around that in humane ways and tried to you know fix that for everybody so that everybody can coexist yeah and not at an or but and understand that they're beautiful they're wonderful mimickers they're you know they're great at ad- adapting like the skills that they have to just eat anything and be anywhere that's wonderful and that they should be included on our life list yeah As critters, you know yeah but I just think that that would be such a wonderful world to live in if we could do the, that and consider both options instead of just living in the one way of viewing things. Yeah, but anyway. and
1: the, I think you said it beautifully, like the coexistence of it all because they're not going anywhere.
0: They're not, no. not
1: Where are they? No, they are no. not. Uh, <laughs> and so instead of you know adopting them as this invasive, territorial, aggressive species, why don't we try to learn about their benefits? Why don't we try to coexist um, and see how we can, how we can live with them?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they're not fucking going anywhere. They're actually, no their numbers are increasing rapidly. So like, yeah. <laughs> you gotta okay. deal with it. Any advice for baby birders, specifically baby birders of color, specifically any you know, Latinx birders that are starting out?
1: Well, I say find a mentor, connect within your, within the community, there's a lot of different connections. Like I know when I was growing up, the Boys and Girls Club um, and Latino Outdoors, wonderful green Latinos, you know, there's, there's a lot of different Latinx um, as well as Black and Native American um, and Asian American uh, specific outdoor groups out there that want to get more POC out in the field you know, out outdoors and learning what they want to do. You know, I, growing up, I, I never had the opportunity to go climbing or, you know, I was introduced to bird washing by old white male, you know, <laughs> but how beneficial would it have been to see an older Latina in that role? You know, I'm not knocking my mentor because I was very, very fortunate, but I, I see that now and how I long to see a woman of color in a position of power where I am right now, you know, just to see that I can do it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I say, get involved with some of your BIPOC focus outdoor groups. Um, Facebook um, and Instagram are a great way to do that. Or just reach out to like, you know, to some um, person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you need help, you know, getting there if you need a mentor I'm no expert whatsoever but I do I do love the birds and I'm happy to always talk about birds with people
0: exactly and I'll I'll be sure to list out your your social medias and stuff like that too if people want to reach out Um, and I do want to say also Rosie you are that Latino woman in position of power right now Oh my i goodness. know you want up top more but like i'm just saying for for the work that you do for young young Latino women like you are that role model you know you are
1: i appreciate that i've been learning yeah. on on letting it land
0: so i'm going to just say thank you let that take it take it
1: <laughs> and i will say the same for your for you as well this what you're doing the outreach that you're having with this platform and just your desire I remember talking about it you know yeah. <laughs> talking about it you know and then this coming to fruition and just like the immense support that you have behind it um, is just amazing to see and there's no doubts in my mind that you would accomplish it
0: a lot of doubts, but so thank you. I appreciate that yeah. for sure. <laughs> it's hard to put yourself out there the, the way that I am for sure, but um, anyway, I appreciate that. Compliments all around. Um, okay, so this is my favorite part of the interview. We we kind of already have been digging into a bunch of stuff, but oh, yeah. this is the, the part of the let's dig into it series where I love to give our the 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 guests that I bring on the floor to essentially bring up whatever the heck they want to talk about could be about birding could not be about birding could be about anything and we will dig the hell into it yeah what you got for me oh, girl, well, girl.
1: <laughs> it's hard because there's so much I mean you know when we were together we dug into it for like three and a half hours while getting ate, eaten by mosquitoes yes. you know <laughs> talking about white supremacy, when some dudes just with, that just went golfing, white dudes were just golfing right next to us, just talking loud about
0: it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to talk about how people of color are in a position of power right now, especially in big green to make a difference. Um, I do feel like it is our time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the world is watching. I feel like our presence is, and this might sound very um, crude, um, but I feel like our presence is currency to these big green organizations that are adopting DEIJ as part of their mission statements, their job descriptions and their strategic plans. I, I sincerely feel like the tides are changing and what I can say to these big green organizations is, we're coming for you. Um, we've been here all along.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You just wouldn't let us in, mm-hmm. and now you have no choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can mm-hmm. dig it.
0: <laughs> I um, look this. I'm I'm ready for this one because this is like. This is one of the things that I didn't quite expand upon in my last episode about national blackbird society. Yeah. When I co- was calling in the founders of Blackbirders Week because that that I think what you're talking about is uh the the Blackbirders Week movement is like a, a perfect example of yeah. of power that people of color hold right now, especially within this birding community and um, that then transfers out into those big green organizations that you're talking about. Because that that shift, that changed the game for a lot of people. That connected me with a lot of, of birders of color who have the same passions that I do, both within conservation, birding, natural space, love, as well as the social justice behind all of it. Mom, don't call me right now, I'm getting into it. (laughs) Um, But And that when we look at what's happening at National Audubon, that yes, white people have a lot of power right now, but I'm telling you like people of color have more right now. And if we take all of that energy that's in and behind that movement, then their, their pressure that these organizations are gonna feel, they they have to make a choice and they have to make like a choice to do it, not talk about it, y'all need to do it or don't. And if you don't, then you need to suffer the consequences of that, which could very well, like what I think you were trying to get at, it could very well be financial for them. Mm-hmm. You could lose donors, you could lose, you know, the support that you, that you need to function as a nonprofit if you are a nonprofit. Um, Because people really aren't down with this shit no more, you know, like, sorry, not sorry about it. It's accountability, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think,
1: uh, I mean, we're seeing it right now. Whiteness has had a history of not being accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think right now, we're in that position to hold people accountable. Because once again, because we're not going anywhere. I, it's it's funny because I talk about this all the time, and when it comes down to it, it's just keeping these people accountable and letting them know. And when I say these people, I'm specifically targeting people in leadership positions that are white and are refusing to give up power or share power because whiteness is surrounding them and it's a disease they have to get through. Like if they make space for people of color, then they lose some sort of power. That's not it. We're not asking for your And I I sincerely wonder um, in the plight to be quote unquote more inclusive with these organizations. Is it, it, are these trainings just to make the white people in these organizations more comfortable with our existence in this space or is it to amplify underrepresented voices?
0: Oh, I knew he was going to get into some shit. That's the that's question. I've never thought of that before. And I am very, very uh, prone to think the former. Yes. I think that when, when companies hire DEI outsiders to come in and, and do consulting with them, half the time, the, the ways in which the, those, those companies go about talking about DEI is traumatizing for people of color. Every yeah, yeah. moment, the people of color have to do so much work in the room to help, even if you're not verbalizing or having a conversation and, and, and reliving your own trauma, you're sitting there Basically, as with like a microscope on you, because all of the light sheds on you when that stuff comes up, and people, white people, start looking to you to answer their questions, and and or hold their emotional space while they basically are being told that they're ter- terrible people. You know what I mean? Like, and I know when you know um, when the organization we worked at went through all of that training. I was literally telling one of my friends about this experience, like the mandatory initial DEI thing that we had to go through, which was at the facility pre-COVID times Whoa! um, It was maybe a handful of people of color and the rest of the people were white from various different organizations. And the the PowerPoint, the, the activities that we had to do were harmful. They brought up all of the shit that we already know in in terms of history in a video where they were like talking about Emmett Till they were showing people getting hung from trees to like force empathy out of these white people but I'm sitting up here crying my fucking face off surrounded by white people being really uncomfortable because I already know this isn't a history lesson for me this is like an emotional this is emotionally draining then I got to sit across from some white stranger that I don't know and talk about my the first time I experienced racism what the fuck So (laughs) look (laughs) look why what it's not so to answer your question is it is I personally do not think that it is at all to uplift or get or make way or get these white leaders in these positions to understand how to distribute power so that we can raise up in those in those facilities or those organizations, it is to, to make white people comfortable with our existence there and to treat us as baseline people, you know what I mean? Which I think is fucked up and therefore it's not actually doing any work because again, there's no, accountability outside of the workplace on um, the the unlearning anti-racist work that these individuals have to do within themselves yeah first you know yeah
1: it, it's a hard reality to face you know when somebody told me that I mean a, a couple of months ago um, myself and a couple of colleagues of color formed a racial caucus at my work um, and I found a lot of solace in that um, and that question came up, you know, what are, what are we trying to do here? Is it trying to make white people comfortable with our existence or are we really working or are we trying to navigate a path towards uh, lifting underrepresented voices up and redistribution of power? And when that came up, I was like, what the? and I realized that it's the former um, and the absolute emotional labor of people of color in these diversity trainings um, and inclusion trainings like we've been through this like we've assimilated to just be in this conversation mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: especially in the environmental field We've assimilated so much just to be here We've adopted your principles of quote unquote conservation. Mm-hmm we've done the white thing to do, right? <laughs> yes. It's it's exhausting. And I do I do want to mention um, the Sierra Club. I'm um, my mentor with the Next 100 Coalition, which brings a whole bunch of people of color together and give them mentors mm-hmm. of, of, of other people of color in environmental organizations, nonprofits, um, federal agencies, um, just like getting them connected with a mentor. Um, He's in the Sierra Club, he's a senior organizer, and he was talking about how the Sierra Club is talking about compensating the people of color in their organization for just for having to go through these trainings. And what leads me to believe that the former is true of getting white people comfortable in these spaces to accept our existence um, is that when our organization was going through our diversity training, we didn't get the option of opting out, right? As people of color, we didn't get the opt out. And so that's like, we know what racism is. Like you don't have to teach us what racism is. We, we live it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, I wonder when the tides will turn. And I think they are right now of when people of color are going to be put, people of color and people of, with underrepresented identities will be put at the forefront when trying to integrate these new practices, quote, unquote, new practices, right? I,
0: I keep coming back to this idea of, again, relying on the white leaders in this, these organizations to make that choice because yeah. it is up to them because they are the leaders, right? Which is just too much power. That's too much power for them to say yes or no to protocol change, to even having DEI work and effort done, to being the ones to decide how and when to put us in the front. I feel like not relying on that shit is our best option. And I say that because one of my friends is working, which you know her, but I'm not gonna say her name yet, just because she's not fully there yet. Um, But she is basically working on the opposite end of DEI shit and being a consultant for people of color in conservation organizations to learn how to navigate the racism in there so that they don't have to leave. Um, And also to step into your power to learn how to advocate for yourself, um, to learn how to um, advocate for the things that you need and make it happen so that you move yourself up instead of relying on the white people around you to do it for you because they ain't going to do it that's really just how it is right and I she told me that shit and I was like yes like I instead of working for right like I just think that idea is amazing and that is necessary because we need that support from she's a woman of color to have that community and that counsel from another person of color to help you remain in your career choice and know that you're not alone um, and so that you don't have to I mean you're gonna you're gonna acquire more trauma but to help you with that like it's not therapy or anything like that but I just like love that idea. And I just, I don't want people, I don't want us to rely on white people to make those decisions anymore because they're not not going to. And and if they are, we are going to suffer massively at the hands of them trying to get their shit together. I think that that's
1: that's such an amazing idea.
0: And I think I know who you're
1: talking about (laughs) because even this conversation is centered in whiteness, right? Uh But the conversation that they're having centering BIPOC mm-hmm. and what an absolutely in shit insane idea <laughs> to do right I know a, changing the paradigm and just hearing that 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 work is being done is just it's it's seeing things the way that hasn't been seen before and I'm that's phenomenal mm-hmm. um because, yeah, th- th- this work is centered in whiteness and uh, teaching them about the history that you know BIPOC have faced instead of like, hey, we understand that your organization has inherently racist practices and they're not yet ready to deal with it and check themselves as white supremacists, white supremacists, and upholding these pillars of it and replicating it in your organization. What do you need in order to survive? Exactly, exactly. like, what do you need? order to survive. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be taking BIPOC and underrepresented communities to the forefront. That's phenomenal.
0: And doing it all by our damn selves, you know what I mean? And and like not centering whiteness and not waiting. I'm not waiting around for white people to get the fuck together no more, you know? So it's it's ensuring that the trauma stops, uh, hopefully stops, if not learning how to deal with the trauma, um, and learning that you are being traumatized. <laughs> First of all, I love that idea. And I can't wait for this person to start that up. Um, I think, and I hope that that catches on that more and more people will do that because I think that that's the only way for any real change to happen. Because again, to come back to to what we we're talking about, we have the power right now. And as soon as we get ourselves into situations where we continue to, move that power forward and move that power around and spread that power out more importantly to work amongst other people of color they literally will not know what to do and it will fall. It's currently crumbling but it will fall and I can't wait. (laughs) I will be front row center popcorn Popcorn and all you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh my goodness
1: I, I do want to say, like hinting back on the trauma that you were talking about, that the trauma that the that both you and I faced at the organization mm-hmm. that we both worked at um, was detrimental to how we show up in this space. Now
0: mm-hmm. we
1: should not have been in a situation that traumatized us for the rest of our lives. I told you, I uh, I you know when we met in person a while back that I didn't want to be in the conservation field again. Mm-hmm. I was turned mm-hmm. off. I went. Yellowstone National Park, because I was so turned off by these people. So turned off by conservation in general. And it was another woman of color who got me back into it. A woman in a position of power that got me back into this, got me back into this. She's like, it's going to be okay. I'm here, you know? And so that's, that's what got me back to my passion because it was there, but it was snuffed out by white people who were too scared to confront their, their, their their own inherent bias and racism and scared of me speaking out against
0: it mm-hmm. I am not a quiet woman no no baby you're not and i and neither <laughs> am I and that and that that literally like that shit scares people and I think it also scares BIPOC people because I remember this was after you left and I had gotten into the the effort trainer position and there was a the the getaway thing that we all went on, and that was when they had that DEI group come in, and they were asked by the DEI group to uh, describe that organization with one word, and there were so many people who were like white, um, white dominated, male, you know, and I and it got to me, and I was like, it sounds like this place is racist, and y'all can't say the y'all can't say the word. So how y'all doing the work if you can't even say the word? And I said like just like that. And I, one of my black colleagues came up to me afterwards and said, "I was extremely concerned for you after you said that." And I was like, "Is that dangerous, really? It's it's birds. Why am I? Why is my safety like what? It's birds. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so that it it when it comes to like people like us, you know, because I know that you're not a quiet human at all when especially when it comes to this shit and I think that people especially white people do not know how to handle that as as us as people of color and then as women yeah like and they they will do everything to to get you out of there and that I it's never, it's never even really direct either. It was such an underhanded shit that happened to you, and it was underhanded shit that, you know, I went through to make my choice to leave to to not further damage myself. I'm glad to hear that you were. I'm so glad that you're back in the in this in this field anyway, because like we need you. Um, and also I'm I'm more than thrilled to hear that it was a woman of color that got you back. That's basically also what happened to me too is like, and it's still happening to me cause I'm still processing my trauma because I want nothing more, but to like work with and train birds again. There's, yeah. but I like, not only am I afraid to go out and, and apply for other places because I feel like I'm not going to be seen as knowing what I'm doing um, because that's what I was told every day <laughs> doing that job. And, and also, I don't want to work for white people no more. And that's all there is when it comes specifically to avian training and doing any type of like, avian education work with that, like such a niche kind of job. And I'm like, look, I'm not about to do this same shit again just to do my dream job, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not gonna I, I'm either afraid to get back into it because of, of all the trauma and want and like not wanting to have that happen again or you're just like completely done with it and you're like fuck this shit it's not worth it you know I don't know yeah. we're not on tangent but
1: no no it's true and I don't feel like you should have to choose right no. <laughs> and and this is the era where you're not going to have to. Um once again it's crumbling. Um and I don't I and Sam you're working towards that and you it, hearing about what you did with that ed bird program was phenomenal the consent aspect was just isn't that mind-blowing and just uh, it's it's like using those birds as a commodity to some of those people right Mm -hmm. but they're actual living and breathing beings um just like people Mm -hmm. and this has been on my mind a lot lately about having to exist in whiteness and wondering when I'm ne- when I'm not going to have to anymore, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I think that it's been made very, very apparent that they are not going to give up power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do we survive in that, and how do we thrive? Because I'm no longer interested in surviving whiteness. Yeah. I'm here yeah. to thrive, right. you know. Like I told you, I'm I'm the do- I'm the daughter of an illegal immigrant. You know, I spent most of my life hiding from immigration, La Migra, from legal, it, it, just from hiding. I, I just hid for my entire life. Now that my mom is a legal citizen and I am a grown woman, I'm no longer interested in hiding anymore. And I'm no longer interested in putting my interests and my safety on the back burner to appease whiteness. Um, I assimilated as much as I could and it's still not enough. There's nothing that we can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, what do we do? What do we do with the situation? I'm going to show up for that's what. I, that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uplift their voices mm-hmm. um, because I'm no longer interested in placating whiteness anymore or playing their games. I bring up the border wall because mm-hmm. all day about the jaguar and the ocelot and these species that are crossing the border, you know, international species. Um, but until, but you, have, you cannot talk about the border wall with talking about inherently racist ideal of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, can you, how can you say we're against this just because when you have Latinx people working for you, right? How how can you say that, right? How can how can you be so? It, it's like how how can you turn a blind eye to what what this is actually? the physical manifestation of. Right.
0: And it, two more examples of that too is like conservation movements can't have the con- the conversation about land con- conservation without having a conversation w- with indigenous people. That's mm-hmm. not, this is not our land to begin with. So you want to conserve it after history and your ancestors, white people took it. Yeah. In the first fucking place. And then also back to the California condor conversation, you can't have the scientific conversation about that without having conversations about and with the Yurok people and their work toward, towards it and the cultural relevance and specialness that that, that those birds represent for them. That it doesn't. They're they're they do not It's not separate. Like conservation and animals and land is not separate from black and brown and indigenous people. but white people love to separate that shit stick to birds okay but I can't I we we shouldn't be you know what I mean it's not just about birds you know stop having political conversations I love to see that shit I'm like well you okay okay (laughs) the connect the connectivity isn't there for
1: some people and I don't know how Complete regard
0: I mean we know how but I mean (laughs)
1: but (laughs) it's a complete privilege of being able to look at it with just that lens is just wild
0: it's wild it doesn't make any sense and it's just like okay you go ahead and live in your your little rose tinted bubble and i'm gonna pop that shit one day so yeah there we go anyway let's end with i want you to shout out another BIPOC leader or even just an animal that you love or a project that you're working on and, and and take us out with that.
1: So you actually introduced me to the Black and Latinx Birders, um, birders scholarship yes. from the Maryland Bird Conservation Partnership and I'm all the way the fuck into that. That's yes awesome. me too. It's amazing so I do want to plug that and then my home girl, OG Mama P, who is a black woman with her masters in fisheries and wildlife uh, that I work with as well, working in landscape conservation. Um, she is just a phenomenal um, nature enthusiast and outdoors woman person. Mm-hmm. And plug plug her because she's been a significant, she's just been a significant role model in, in this space and uplifting Voices, and I, I do want to plug her there as well.
0: Yeah. Do you have um, her social media at all? Yeah. OG Mama P. For Instagram and Twitter, or just Instagram?
1: Just Instagram, I think. All I, right.
0: I, OG Mama P. I thank you so much for all the things that you do, um, both within your organization for conservation, as well as just just in general for that. But as a woman of color, as a, as a Latina woman doing that work, I'm here for that. And just all of the the things that you do and that you say and the love and the joy that you spread just as a person. I love you.
1: (laughs) you, Sam, I really appreciate you immensely. And I'm just so, so insanely proud of you. (laughs) You made me
0: cry. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being by today. Um, We, we'll wrap up with that and remember we can always be burden always be burden